Welcome to Working the Word with Jonathan Vorse. Join us now for service already in progress at Lakewood Church of God. Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Mount. We're going to talk today about the Christian's code of conduct. The Christian's code of conduct. Look at your neighbor and say, God wants you to act like a Christian. God wants us to conduct ourselves like a Christian and He wants us to conduct ourselves in in the right way. Now the Beatitudes, I call them the Christian's code of conduct. And uh, we're going to go through them today for just a few moments. You're probably going to learn some things about the Beatitudes that you weren't aware of. And uh, I'm going to teach you uh, about the Beatitudes. Now I want you to understand that the Sermon on the Mount is not just the Beatitudes. That's the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 6, and Matthew chapter 7. But today we're going to talk about the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 5. All right, are you ready? Matthew chapter 5. Jesus, seeing the multitudes, went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed, somebody say blessed. Come on, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad for great is your reward in heaven for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you today. We thank you for how the word of God can challenge our hearts and challenge our lives. Lord, I pray that you would speak through me. The Holy Spirit would teach through me. May I speak the divine oracles of God. May they fall upon receptive ears and understanding hearts. I pray, Lord, that you would touch us to be able to apply the principles of the word that we, that we receive today, this coming week, and receive and reap the benefits of that. We give you praise for it in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Let's get going here. In Matthew chapter 3, we witness John the Baptist preaching. Jesus coming, Jesus being baptized in water. Matthew chapter 4, we witness Jesus preaching. And then in Matthew chapter 5, we find where the Bible says, seeing the multitudes, Jesus went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him, verse 2, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, So beginning in Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 6, Matthew chapter 7, we see Jesus embarking upon the responsibility of discipleship training. Discipleship training. Many times preaching results in in other people giving their life to Jesus Christ, in the lost coming to Jesus. But what then? After you give your life to Christ, what then? It's time to become a disciple which is a person, a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ who is learning the disciplines and putting into practice the disciplines of Christian living. And so Jesus sets down 
and he speaks to the disciples. Now understand, the Bible said there's a multitude down there, but Jesus takes these disciples. He goes up into a mountain and he decides, I need to start making disciples. I go down, I can preach to the mountain, to, to, the, to the multitude on the side of the mountain, or I can come up in the mountain with these uh, disciples and I can begin their training. Now, I put this down here. Witnessing the power of Christ and learning how to be his disciple are two completely different things. Jesus could have stayed with the multitude. He could have kept preaching. He could have kept healing the sick, raising the dead, all of the things that Jesus did. Jesus could have kept doing that. But Jesus understood that the way to multiply the kingdom was to make disciples. Jesus understood that the way to multiply the kingdom was to make disciples. So he discovered or, or decided is a better word. He decided that it was more valuable for the kingdom for him to take these disciples and pour himself into them over the next few chapters that we have here. It was more valuable for the kingdom for him to do that rather than to be speaking and preaching to the multitudes. I think there's a great lesson in that. And the great lesson is this, more is not always better. More is not always better. Sometimes it's more important for us and better for the kingdom and better for us if we will just give ourselves to teaching and to training. And sometimes as a pastor and as an evangelist and as a prophet and a teacher of the word of God or an apostle or whatever the scriptures call it, sometimes, sometimes it's important for us to realize, you know what? Sometimes I don't need to be preaching to the multitudes. Sometimes I don't need to be ministering to the multitudes. Sometimes it's better for the kingdom if I just say, I'm going to pour myself in to this group of folks right here. And I think this was what Jesus was up to here. He was saying, you know, we can witness the power of Christ, but witnessing the power of Christ or the anointed one in learning how to be his disciple really are two different things. Now, in the Sermon on the Mount, we call I like to call the Sermon on the Mount the, the biblical code of conduct, the Christian's code of conduct for all Christ followers. The Sermon on the Mount is uh, obviously Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and it's clearly about kingdom behavior, especially the Beatitudes is clearly about kingdom behavior as evidenced in the first beatitude and the last beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then we go on here in verse number 10. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs uh, is the kingdom of heaven. And so we see this is really more about kingdom behavior and it's really more about the kingdom than anything. And so when we talk about the Christian's code of conduct, we're talking about people who call themselves sons of God, Christians, heirs of God, joiners with Jesus Christ. We're talking about the way that they need to conduct themselves. So we're talking about kingdom behavior. Now the word beatitude means blessedness, uh, felicity of the highest kind, consummate bliss, used of the joys of heaven. And so we could say when we live God's way, we can expect to live a blessed, fulfilled, and joyful life. Now I chose to put 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3 here because, uh, because of what I've underlined there. God's power has given unto us all things, the Bible says, that pertain unto life and godliness. And the underlined part that I underlined is through the knowledge of Him who has called us to glory and virtue. The first thing I want you to do is look at your neighbor and say, you have been called to God's glory and God's power. Tell them that. 
Yeah, you've been called to God's glory and God's power. Every single one of us in this place today has been called to God's glory and God's power. That word virtue means power. So the Bible says here that God's power is given unto us, God's power is given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who's called us to glory and virtue, God's glory and God's virtue. So the only way that I'm going to attain the place of God, the place in God that I need to attain, the only way that I'm going to get there, the only way that I'm going to receive what I need from the Lord and become what God needs me to become is to study the attributes and the characteristics of God. Because the Bible says here that God has given us power that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of Him. That's the only way we're going to get it is through the knowledge of God. Now you can know about God and you can know God. Let me give you a real life example of that. I used this in the first service. Now you don't have to raise your hands if you don't want to because I don't want any man in this place to get in trouble. But how many men here, and you don't have to raise your hands, but how many men here can tell us your wife's favorite color? Well, some of you guys are raising your hands and that's because you want to prove to her, see, I know. Okay, now why would you say that, Pastor? Because listen, knowing someone and knowing about them are two totally different things. Now if I ask every single man in here, do you know your wife? Oh yes, I know her. I know her and she knows me. She knows what buttons to push. She knows me. She knows how to make me happy. She knows how to make me sad. She knows how to make me glad. I know how to make her happy, sad, and glad. I can do all of that. And so, and so, yeah, 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 I know her. I know her. Okay, but when you know her favorite song, when you know her favorite color, when you know her favorite movie, Gone with the Wind, I hate that movie, because I had to watch it over and over and over and over and over. And finally, I looked at my wife one day. I said, frankly, my dear... I'm not Rhett, and you're not, what's his name, Rhett? And you're, and you're not Scarlet. So you thought I was going to say the other word, didn't you? But yes, I've watched that movie over and over and over. When you know those things, then you know not just them, but you know about them. And when the Bible says here, God's power was given unto us, has given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who has called us to glory and virtue, what that's telling us is we need to learn God so much that we know what makes Him tick. We need to know what He's passionate about. We need to know what He loves. We need to know what He hates. The Bible said there are seven things that God hates. We need to know what He hates. We need to know what He loves. We need to know what His passion is, what His heart is. So knowing about God and knowing who God is and knowing God are two totally different things. And so when we talk about living the blessed life, living fulfilled and living the joyful life, then God, we have to realize that God has made it possible for us to do that. But the only way we can do that is to get to know God. Not just know about Him, but get to know Him. 
Well, does, does God really love me? Yes. How do you know that? Because his word says that he loves you and he loves you so much he sent his son Jesus, his only begotten son to die so that you could be saved and become at one with God. So it's, it's, it would seem to me that, would, that it would be very important to God that lost people would come into the saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And let me tell you, if it's important to God, it needs to be important to his disciples. If God cares about something, we need to care about it. If God doesn't care for something, we don't, don't need to care about it. So when we look at the Beatitudes and when we look at this, I, I think it's important to remember that. Now, the word blessed means supremely, this is in the Strong's, supremely blessed by extension, fortunate, well-off, blessed, happy. That's the Strong's concordance. So blessed means well-off and happy. So when the Bible says blessed are they that mourn, well off and happy are they that mourn. And yes, I did a study in the Beatitudes of all of those words that says blessed to make sure it's the very same word, and it is. So it means well off and happy. Why? Because we operate in God's systems and we live in God's economy. That's why we're happy. And then the Bible says blessed, and then kingdom means royalty, rule, realm, kingdom plus reign. So we come to the conclusion that our position is one of royalty in the realm of God for the purpose of reigning with heavenly authority both now and throughout the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. So when the Bible says that we are blessed and we are blessed in the kingdom, then that's what it's saying. It's saying that you are well off, that you are happy and that you live in the realm of God's glory and God's authority and God's blessing. So when we go through this, when the Bible says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, we can say, well off and happy are the poor in spirit for they, for they live in God's realm of authority and power. They are royalty. All right, now let's, let's go through this. I want you to read these with me and then we're going to break them down. Are we ready? All right, read them with me. Number one, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. And blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the verse after that is an expansion of that verse, and we'll talk about that later on. So let's start working through this, okay? The first one is blessed. Somebody say, well off and happy. Well off and happy. happy. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now let's have a little audience participation preaching here. All right, I want you to look at your neighbor, and I want you to say, I wonder how God feels when we misinterpret His Word. It's right there. Come on, you don't have to remember it. You can read it. I wonder how God feels when we misinterpret His Word. Well, why would you say that, Pastor? Because I want you to hear me loud and clear. When the Bible says, blessed are the poor in spirit, that's not talking about physical poverty. It's not talking about blessed are those who are down on themselves and poor on themselves. No, no, no. Poor speaks of humility, not poverty. In fact, the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 16 and verse number 18 that pride comes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. So what the scripture is saying is well off and happy are those who are something less than prideful. 
who are, who are not prideful, those who realize that if it hadn't been for the grace of God, where would I be? Thank God he saved me. Thank God he washed me. Thank God he cleansed me. Thank God he set me free. Thank God he sanctified me and he set me apart and he redeemed me from the curse of the law. Thank God he made me the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Thank God that he took poverty off of me. Thank God for that. And so it speaks of us acknowledging that without God, we would have no value in the kingdom. Because without God, it wouldn't be possible for us to be a son of God or an heir of God or a joint heir with Jesus Christ or walk in kingdom authority or experience the power of God and the power of Christ in our life. Without God, it wouldn't be possible, would it? But thank God it's possible because of Jesus. So when the Bible says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, it's not talking about physical poverty. It's talking about us understanding that we are who we are because of Jesus Christ and it's nothing we have done in ourselves. It's the total opposite of pride. Pride comes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Now look at the promise of this promise. Look at the promise of the promise. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Kingdom is God's system and God's ways of doing things. So when I realize it's all because of God, then I can get in God's system and God's ways of doing things and I can reap the benefits of heaven here on the earth. The second one is, Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be Comforted. Now, when we talk about this, we're talking about when we experience the conviction of our sinful state. Every single one of us, when we give our life to Jesus Christ, we gave our life to Christ because the scales fell off of our eyes and we experienced conviction come into our heart and our life and we realized, I need Jesus. I can't do this on my own anymore, God. I need some help and I can't do it by myself. And so our eyes were opened to the fact that we need a Savior. So when the Bible says, blessed are they that mourn, it's not talking about those that are weeping because they lost a loved one. No, it's talking about those who realize that through their sinful state, they need Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. So so in my sinful state, I was in mourning because I was living death. Do you get that? I was living death. And then we go on here. Uh, Psalm 51, 2 through 4. I chose to put that there as an Old Testament example. David was crying out to God and he said this He said because of the sin of Bathsheba. And he was crying out to God and he said, Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. I tell you there is great comfort in knowing that when we come to Jesus Christ, when we have sinned, when we've had a willful transgression against the law of God, when we've missed the mark, there's great comfort in knowing that when we come to Him and we are utterly remorseful and we're sorry for our sins, that because of the blood of Jesus, He will not just cover that sin, but He will cleanse it and remove it as far as the east is from the west and remember us against us no more. When that happens, He turns our sorrow and our mourning into dancing and into joy. How many remember when you gave your life to Christ? How how many remember the euphoric feeling that you had when you got up from that altar, if that's where you were, and you got up, it seemed like the weight of the world was off of you. Do you remember that? 
That's one of the signs of giving your life to Christ is you realize, I don't have to carry the weight of this sin anymore. And so when the Bible said, blessed are they that mourn, they shall be comforted. Now listen to me very closely, okay? The lost are in mourning and they don't even know it. Did you hear me? Lost people are in mourning and they don't even know it. Well, what do you mean by that, Pastor? Well, they're carrying around the weight of sin and the weight of the world on them and they're like, oh my goodness, I, I don't know. And, and they'll, they'll come in and they'll be beat down and discouraged and depressed and all of this, these kinds of things. And, and, and you look at them and you, and you say, you know, I'm going to pray for you and you just start ministering to them. And, and one of these days, maybe they'll give their life to Jesus Christ. And if they give their life to Jesus Christ, they'll experience a weight come off of them that they didn't even know they were carrying. That's why the Bible tells us, I believe it's in the book of Corinthians, that we need to pray that the scales fall off the eyes of the lost that they would see their need of a Savior. You're never going to convince someone through an intellectual conversation that they need to give their life to Jesus Christ. Some things can only be received through revelation and not through reason. You can't reason someone out of hell and into heaven. you got to pray with them and, and pray that the Lord will do the work in their heart and pray that the Lord will do the work in their life. People that get saved intellectually aren't saved at all. They haven't, they, you know, they, well, okay, I just intellectually came to the decision that I need to give my life to Jesus Christ, so here we go. And so everything that they do, they will take credit for. Yet we have to get to the point, lost people have to get to the point where they realize, I've got to do something about this that I'm carrying. I've got to do something about this. And then the church begins to pray and God takes the scales off of their eyes and they begin to experience God in a way that they didn't know that they could ever experience Him before. It comes through revelation. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Hallelujah. All right, so the Bible said, Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now let's continue on here. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Come on, touch your neighbor and say, Meekness is not weakness. Yeah, meekness is not weakness. Meekness is humble, mild, easy to deal with, and strong. Those are definitions of meekness. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is strength under control. Strength under control. I learned many, many years ago raising my children that I could raise my voice and holler at them and I could like that and I could try to get them to, to obey me. And then I also learned that I could just look at them and say, I said no in that tone. Daddy said no. It wasn't how I said it, it's what I backed it up with that mattered. You can scream and holler at your kids all day long. And listen, the louder you holler, the less they respect you. It's not you hollering at them that matters. What matters is what you back that up with. If you tell them, I said no, then it needs to be no. no need, the Bible says, let your no be no and your yes be yes. Let your yeas be yeas and your nays be nays. So meekness is not being loud. Or, or, or meekness is not weakness and, and, and you don't have to be loud and you don't have to be boisterous and you don't have to be screaming and you don't have to be hollering in order to be powerful. 
What matters is what you back it up with. And so we go on here, Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, or 29, Jesus said this. He said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Somebody say, learn of me. Learn. Come on, I'm, I'm keeping you engaged. Learn of me. And then it says, for I am meek. Jesus was saying, I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls, which is the seat of your mind and your will and your emotions. Now let me share this. I've shared it several different times. We have new people here that we, we always seem to have uh, more people, new, new people. I want to share with you, when we, when we see the word yoke, what we think of automatically is a yoke that we would put around an oxen's neck. But this passage of Scripture is not talking about that. It's talking about the teachings of Jesus. Jesus was a rabbi. He was rabbinical. He was a rabbi. And so their teaching was known as their yoke. And so that's why Jesus said, take my yoke, because the scripture before that said, come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And then he said, take my yoke upon you, and listen to this, and learn of me. So learn my teachings, learn my processes, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest under your souls. So that chaos that you're feeling, that confusion that you're feeling because the soul is the seat of the mind and the will and the emotions. So Jesus was saying, let me minister to your mind. Let, let the word of God bring your will into line with God. Let your emotions come intact through my teachings for my yoke is easy. In other words, it's not hard to understand. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is not hard to practice. That's what he was saying. So when the Bible said, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth, then we immediately think of Jesus who actually said that he is meek. Jesus said, I'm meek and I'm lowly in heart and ye shall find rest unto your souls. Now let me say this very loud. I want everybody to hear me. <laughs> Listen, the earth does not belong to the devil. It belongs to God. It belongs to God. Satan was cast down to the earth, but God did not give up ownership of the earth. The Bible said the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. That's why when the enemy tries to mess with your head, he's trespassing on God's property. Because you belong to God. I belong to God. We all belong to God. The Bible said they shall inherit the earth. Why will the meek inherit the earth? Because it belongs to God. And when we give our life to Christ, we become blessed and we become a son of God and an heir of God and a joiner with Jesus Christ. Therefore, everything that God has becomes ours because we're joint heirs with Jesus Christ. And if the earth is part of God's portfolio, come on, and we're part of God's portfolio, and we're walking and functioning as sons of God and heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ, then the earth belongs to us as much as it belongs to God. 
So when the devil tries to mess with you and he tries to defeat you and he tries to destroy you and he tries to beat you down and he tries to make you feel like you're a nobody and you're a nothing and you don't have anything and nothing, you just need to look at him and say, ha, 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 this is one loser trying to convince a blessed person that they, that they don't have anything. Devil, you're the loser. You don't even have a place to exist. You were cast to the earth. You're called the prince and the power of the air. You're not welcome in heaven. The church is kicking you off of the earth. What are you going to do? I'll tell you what you're going to do. You're going to be thrown into the bottomless pit with the devil and the angels and we're going to reign in victory. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So don't let that vagabond, the devil, try to stop you from receiving the blessing that God has upon your life. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is strength under control and when you know you own it, then you don't have to fight for it. Hallelujah. Continuing on. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, the Bible says, for they shall be filled. I want to back up just a moment. See where it says they shall inherit the earth? That just solidifies what I was teaching you about your God's property, and it's, it's part of your portfolio now. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Now, in 2 Corinthians... Chapter 5 and verse number 21. Let's just go over there. Grab your Bible. Go over there real quick like. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse number 21. It's to the right in your Bible. Second Corinthians. I'm in 1 Corinthians. Look at that. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. For he, speaking of God, hath made... Somebody say the word made. Made him, speaking of Jesus to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made, say made, made the righteousness of God in Him. Now when the Bible said, blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled, then we need to look at righteousness for just a few moments. First of all, we need to understand that we were made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. The day that you gave your life to Jesus Christ, you were made the righteous. It's part of your genetic reconstruction, if you will, spiritually speaking. You, when you become born again, you were made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Now, I want you to look, and the reason I had just to, uh, to mention those words or repeat after me those words made is because the definition of those two words are different. Okay? So, he, for he hath made him to be sin for us. God made Jesus to be sin for us. That's poio, which means to make or to do. So God made Jesus, in other words, he imposed or imputed upon, he imposed upon him to become sin. He made him to be sin for us. He made him do that. Jesus offered himself, but God, so it, it was a kind of, kind of uh, something that they did together. Christ offered himself, but God made him to be sin for us. The Bible said, the one who knew no sin. Who knew no sin. There's another place. That, and, and in this passage of Scripture, we could also interpret that as he made him to be a sin offering for us. That's another way that we could put it. I think Wearsby puts it that way. He made him to be a sin offering for us. Who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And that word made there for us means to cause to be or to generate or to, be, or to come into being. 
So what this, what this is really saying is that God made Jesus to become a sin offering for us so that he could genetically make us the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus or so that we could come into being as a son of God or an heir of God and a joiner with Jesus Christ. Once again, everything goes back to Calvary. Everything goes back to the cross. There is so much that happened on the cross. It changed everything for eternity. So we look at this. The Bible said, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be, somebody say, filled. Now let's go to James chapter 2, verse 23 right here. Abraham believed God and it was imputed to him for righteousness. That word imputed there, it was righteousness was put on him. But the Bible said if we hunger and thirst after righteousness, that righteousness will be put in us, he will fill us. He will make us the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus from the inside out. What's the difference? How come it was put on Abraham but put in us? The cross, that's why. The cross. It all, it all changed at the cross. It all happened at the cross. In the Old Testament, sin was covered. In the New Testament, sin was cleansed. In the Old Testament, righteousness was put on people. In the New Testament, righteousness is put in people. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came upon people. In the New Testament, the Holy Spirit comes into people. The cross changed everything. It changed it all. So blessed or well off and happy are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness not because it will be imputed upon them but because they will be filled up with it. Made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus so we can come into being as a righteous son of God. We can cause to be, that righteousness can be generating inside of us at all times. What is righteousness? Right standing with God. That's what that, that's what happens when you're going down the road and something happens and all of a sudden you get that little twinge inside of you and you wonder what in the world is that? Well that's the generator working. <laughs> that's inside of you. It's, 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 it's that right standing with God. You know, something's happening, something's going awry and so you start to experience the conviction of it and you say, wait a minute, I'm not supposed to do that because your generator's working. You're made and you're being made and you're generating. Righteousness is generating inside of you at all times because you gave your life to Jesus Christ and because you live on this side of Calvary. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Touch your neighbor and say, this is a total different relationship than Abraham had. Come on, tell them. Hallelujah. Abraham was the friend of God. If God would do for his friend what he did for Abraham, what will he do for his family? Woo, hallelujah. All right, let's continue here. The Bible says, Blessed or well-off and happy are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Now let me talk about this for just a few moments, okay? Being merciful means that we carry a forgiving spirit. Now, I've said this many times, but repetition is the key to learning, and I've got to get it inside of you. There is a difference between forgiveness and pardon. Don't ever forget it. There is a difference between forgiveness and pardon. You forgive so you can release that person and live forward. 
You don't pardon them for what they've done. You have to have boundaries in your life. You know, people don't like boundaries. They don't like to be restricted. But I'm going to tell you something. I had a friend come to me not too long ago and they made the statement. They said, you know, he said, I have my family here. And he said, I've got this big circle around my family. And he said, we let people inside that circle. But when they start creating a mess, he said, we just usher them outside of that circle and they're not welcome to come back inside that circle because they created chaos in our family. And I want to tell you something. There is absolutely nothing wrong with you setting boundaries around your family. You can forgive, but you do not have to pardon. You do not have to pardon. And so if, if you're in relationship with somebody, maybe they're a friend or something, or you're calling them a friend, and every time they're around you, there seems to be things that start happening, and it's, it's just not good for you for them to be around, then draw the line. Draw the boundary line. You know what? Your present and your future is too valuable for you to sacrifice it because of someone else who doesn't care that much about you. It's important for you to put the boundaries up. And so be a forgiving person, but, but put the boundaries up. Put the boundaries up. Make sure, you know, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And also as for me and my house, there's going to be peace here. There's going to be peace here. How many enjoy just living a peace-filled life? I mean, you know, there's absolutely nothing wrong with everything being okay. There's nothing wrong with that. Come on, touch your neighbor and say, it's okay to be okay. It's, it is. It's okay to be okay. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. I mean, you should laugh 12 times a day, 15 times a day. You, you should laugh 20, 20 times a day. If you don't know how to laugh, get with Rita or get with Dr. John. They'll teach you how to laugh. Both of them will teach you how to laugh. Most of the time, Dr. John, he's getting a little older now, so he's a little, <laughs> praise the Lord, kind of like, <laughs> praise the Lord. <laughs> oh, he's been around with me for almost seven years now. i got the right to pick on him now. i got the license now. Amen. You want, you want some proof of forgiveness and pardon? It's found in the prodigal son. Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. We find a place in Scripture where the Bible said that this prodigal son came to himself after spending all of his living on righteous living. Because he went to his father and he said, Give me my portion now. And he took off. And the Bible said he spent all of his money on righteous living. Well, we, we see in the Scripture where the Bible said that he came home one day. He came to his senses and he came home one day. And the Bible said that the father was so excited. He said, bring a ring and put it on his hand. Put shoes on his feet. Put a robe on his back and kill the fatted calf. Let's eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and he's alive again and he was lost and he is found. And, and the Bible said that the son that had stayed there started to get a little bit jealous. And so he comes to his father and he says, look father, he said, I'm not the one that took off. I honored you. I stayed with you. I did the right thing. And here you are having a big party for him. You know what the father father said and this is a very overlooked part of this story you know what the father said to that son he said look he said your brother was lost and he's found again he was broken he's put back together thank God for that but everything that I have is still yours the father did not bring that other son back into the fold and give him everything that he had went and squandered. No, the family covenant was still intact. He forgave him, but he didn't pardon him. 
Well, what's the difference? When you forgive someone, then that means I'm not going to let you hurt me anymore and I forgive you. When you pardon someone, that means you let them off the hook for what they've done. You need to forgive someone who may have done you wrong or your family wrong and they're sitting in the pen, but you don't need to pardon them so they can get out and go do it again to someone else. And that's the difference between forgiveness and pardon. So this is a scriptural example of the difference between forgiveness and pardon. He was, he was accepted back by the Father. He was reinstated as a son. He had the opportunity to operate that way, but everything that he had squandered, he was going to have to rebuild because everything else now belonged to his brother. And I don't find any place in the Scripture where the Father said, okay, we're going to take from the faithful and give to the unfaithful just because we forgave them. You see that? Does that make sense to you? Okay. So the Bible said, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. How many of you know that it doesn't matter how good a person you are, sometimes you still need mercy? Okay. How many of you are married? There we go. All right. <laughs> Blessed are the pure in heart, for, for, they, for they shall see God. Pure in heart speaks of purity of thoughts, feelings, and emotions. Think good thoughts towards other people. The Bible says out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Whatever's inside of you is going to come out of you. And the Bible said those that are pure in heart, the Bible said will see God. What a promise. Now, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Conflict is never resolved accidentally. Peacemakers are blessed because they make peace. Peace doesn't just have to happen. It takes effort. It takes concession. However, let me say this about peacemakers, and I have a little diagram here for conflict resolution. Let me say this about peacemakers. In order to make peace, both parties have to want it. If all the person is interested in is convincing you I'm right and you're wrong, that's not conflict resolution. That's abuse, and you don't need any part of it. You don't need any part of it, okay? So let's look at conflict resolution here. First of all, Matthew 5, 23-24, if you bring your gift to the altar and remember your brother has an ought against you, leave your gift before the altar, go your way, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Now look at this conflict resolution, and there's several of them, but look at this conflict resolution diagram right here. Step one, designate a, pl a private place to meet. Keep it off Facebook. Pastor, you're preaching that. Yeah, I know it. It's nobody's business what's going on. Designate a private meeting place. Number two, define the outcomes that you both want to see. Number three, allow each party to voice their view. I told someone earlier this week because I was talking to them and they kept interrupting me. And I told him, I said, if you will be kind enough to be quiet long enough for me to say what I need to say, all these questions that you keep asking me will be answered in my statement. The most effective form of communication is listening. So give them the opportunity to state their peace and they need to give you the opportunity to state your peace. Agree that there are differences. Explore potential solutions and alternatives. 
agree on a plan to resolve it and have some follow-up steps and then do what you agreed to do. Now, once again, I need to say this, okay? If the person is not interested in anything like this, there's absolutely nothing you can do and you need to draw the boundary line and move forward. Okay? You can be a peacemaker. And the Bible said, blessed are the peacemakers. We had a former president, Abraham Lincoln, that made the statement that the best way to defeat an enemy is to turn him into a friend. I thought that was a powerful statement. However, I would add to that because I've done some living now that it's not always possible to turn your enemy into a friend. Okay? And a lot of times, they'll act like they're your friend so they can get in and do it to you again. Okay? You have to be discerning. We have to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But peacemaking has to be in our heart. It has to be a part of who we are as a disciple. So the Bible said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. What a promise. We can be called the children of God because we are peacemakers. And then the Bible said, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then verses, verse 12, Jesus expanded upon this. The Bible said, Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. You know what that means? You know why Jesus addressed that? You know why he said, blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you? You know why he said that? Because they're going to do that. Because it's going to happen. Listen to me very closely, church. It is not necessary for everybody to like you. Somebody came to me and they said, not too long ago, they said, I don't like you. I said, you don't have to. They said, no, I really don't like you. I, you really don't have to. Just let me take that off of you. you don't. They said, would you be quiet? I said, probably not. I, I, you know, but the thing is, is you just don't let it affect you. You just don't let it phase you. I just, I just walked away. I mean, why in the world fool with stuff like that? The Bible said they're going to revile you. They're going to persecute you. They're going to say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. It said rejoice. And be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Now look, Rome uh, in Luke chapter 6 verse 26, the Bible says, Woe unto you when all men speak well of you, for that's how they talked about the false prophets. You cannot live in truth. You cannot speak in truth. You cannot conduct a life full of truth without gaining some enemies. Because not everybody cares about the truth. They care about their version. But when you come along and you want to add your side of it, they don't want to hear it because they're afraid that they might actually be wrong. Now, what's the Bible say about this? The Bible says it's going to happen. And the Bible said, don't get all cranked up and all worried about it. The Bible said, rejoice. 
When people revile you, when they persecute you, when they say false statements about you, when they go on character assassination campaigns against you because God blessed you and gave you a better car or God gave you a better home, or I just don't know why in the world God would look at them. Look at them. They think they're all that. Ooh, look at them. Say, yeah, I'm born again, blood-bought, spirit-filled child. That's who I am. Hallelujah. I receive it, Lord. I receive the blessing of God upon my life. In fact, sometimes I pray, Lord, bless Bless me so much that it makes my enemies jealous, Lord. Oh, hallelujah, hallelujah. No, I don't, I don't pray that. But. It's just a, a mentality, okay. But look at this. It's not, every, it's not necessary for everyone to like you. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but all of the disciples died as martyrs except John. All of them except John. And... He didn't die as a martyr. It wasn't because they didn't try to kill him. They boiled him in oil. The Bible said that they banished him to an isle called Patmos. And that's where we got the book of Revelation from. The Bible said he was writing there. He said, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a voice as of great many waters say, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning. What was he doing? He could have went over to that Isle of Patmos. I can't believe what they're doing to me. All I've ever done all my life is just try to help people. I prayed for people to be healed and they were healed. I prayed for people to be set free and they were set free. And look, they're just taking me and they're just, oh God, why in the world? No, he said, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. He was rejoicing. He was keeping his mind in the right place in the midst of the persecution, in the midst of the trouble, in the midst of the trial. So the Bible said, blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness sake. And look at the promise, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. The enemy only fights a credible threat. So when you're ministering under the unction of the Holy Spirit or when you're living the Spirit-led life, you can expect the enemy to fight you and when he does, you should wear it as a badge of honor and say, that means I'm on the right track. Praise God, hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Little challenge here. My challenge to us this morning is this. We need to conduct ourselves as a Christian should. We need to conduct ourselves as a Christian should. We need to remember that we are representatives of Jesus Christ. We need to live, act, speak, and conduct ourselves accordingly. It really does matter how we conduct ourselves, church. It really does. It really matters. Hallelujah. Woo. I'm wore out. Hallelujah. How many of you want to be blessed? Come on, let's stand. Thank you for joining us on Working the Word. For more information, go to our website at www.suncoast4, and that's the number 4jesus.tv. You may also write us at 12637 Pony Lane, Hudson, Florida, 34669. Or you may call us at 727-856-1770. Our office hours are Monday through Wednesday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., Thursdays, 9 a.m. to 2 p.m. And remember, the Word will work if you work the Word.